We're in a series in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 10 and go through to verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So ends the reading of God's word. For now, you may be seated. There is a a scientific law that's known as the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I am not an engineer. I am not a scientist. So if you are, please bear with me here. But the best way that I understand this hopefully understanding this correctly, in simple terms, this law states that any closed system left to itself tends toward greater randomness, or in other words, it breaks down. A simple example of this would be perhaps when you drank your coffee this morning, or maybe you're drinking coffee right now. The heat from the coffee starts hot, but then it slowly transfers into the mug and then into the air, but that heat will never return to the coffee. And so because of this, if you want hot coffee, you need to introduce an ordered input of energy in order to reheat that coffee and make it hot again, or maybe a microwave. Uh, We see this law in other places at work as well. We see it uh, maybe in the cars that we drive or the house that we live in. Friends, because of the world that we live in, and as Christians, we of course know that because of the decay of creation, in order to maintain that car, in order to maintain that house, it's important to invest time and energy into its upkeep, to keep it working, to to keep it usable. But friends, if we spend no energy to interrupt that breakdown process, what's going to happen? Deterioration. Now, even the second law, even though the second law of thermodynamics describes material system systems, this law seems to describe other systems too. Take, for example, human relationships, or more specifically, the marriage relationship. Because the world that we live in is a fallen one, healthy marriages are not assumed. Marriage must be worked for. Time and energy needs to be invested in it to keep it working. Otherwise, it will break down. 
Now, last week in our series, we began talking about what it looks like to learn to adjust to a life as our, our lives as Christians in our relationships, whether we are married or single. Paul will talk to married people today, but he's going to talk more to singles in several weeks. And today we return to this subject of marriage to hear what Paul has to say this time about learning to adjust to a difficult marriage. And that's the title of this sermon, Adjusting to a Difficult Marriage. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, you can write that down. What does adjustment look like to keep that marriage working even though there are internal processes at work to break it down? And what is the ordered input of energy that's necessary to keep it all together? Now, friends, we know that Paul is no stranger to addressing difficult, sensitive subjects in his letters. And this topic may be a topic that speaks directly to you in the season of life that you find yourself in, or the Lord has you here because you will be in that season at some point in the future, and the Lord wants to speak to you today. And just as we saw last week, learning the art of adjustment in marriage demands self-giving love on the part of one another, but it also depends on God's sustaining grace. And no matter what season of life you might find yourself in now, God has something to say to you. Whether you're in a happy marriage, or you're in a broken marriage, or you're in a new marriage, if you're a Christian... I want to tell you, you have much reason to hope because God in Christ, in your marriage, is still completing the work of redemption that he began. I'm going to say that again. If you're a Christian here today, you have reason to hope because God wants to use your marriage to complete the work of redemption that he began. So friends, let's look at this text together. Here Paul addresses some Christians in Corinth who find themselves in one of three situations, okay? One of three types of marriages. The first marriage that he addresses is the Christian marriage. Both people in this relationship, the man and the woman, are both born-again believers in Jesus Christ. That's the first marriage he'll address. The second marriage is a mixed marriage. And what I mean by that is, uh, you have a spouse who is a Christian, and you have a spouse who is an unbeliever. A spouse who is a Christian and a spouse who is an unbeliever. And then lastly, he addresses broken marriages. A marriage in which the unbelieving spouse separates from the believing spouse. So the question for us today is, what does self-giving love look like in any of these marriages? And how is God at work in each of them? In each of them. Let's find out get a drink there. Man, I drank all my water. That's okay. The Lord will help me. The first is the Christian marriage. And this, this again, this group consists of a married, uh, a Christian man and a Christian woman. So just as last week, we saw this last week, let's do our best to understand the cultural situation into which Paul was writing. Now, this is important. Paul speaks authoritative scripture. He writes authoritative scripture. This is true for every single age. But the, the way he presents this truth 
accounts for a very specific circumstance going on in first century Corinth. And so we would, we would understand the Bible a lot better if we understood the biblical context before we try to understand the biblical text itself. So let's try to understand the biblical context. Oh, bless you, brother. Just look at you. Man, I love you. Man, and I love you not just because of this, but this just adds to it. Oh, and it's cold too. Wow. What grace. I don't deserve this. So how did people in first century Corinth, in the Greco-Roman world, think about marriage? Well, as you may guess, marriage was not held in very high esteem at all. Kind of like today, I guess. Divorce was rampant far more so than today. Marriage certificates, for example, were written in such a way as the person writing them expected divorce would happen before death came. We have records to indicate that some people were married and divorced as much as, get this, 25 and 30 times. Now, Seneca, a philosopher who is a contemporary of Paul, wrote this. Many women reckon their years by their number of husbands. They leave home to marry, and they marry in order to divorce. And divorce was as easy as it was common. Divorces were frequently divorced by separation. In other words, all you had to do is tell your spouse to leave, or you would leave yourself, and the divorce, the divorce was legal. There was also uh, this, this phrase that we've found in uh, uh, records to show that if you spoke this Latin phrase, then that was a legally binding separation and divorce uh, from your spouse. So that's the setting of the world. Now add to this church culture this little church in Corinth, this small body of believers, maybe 100, 120 members or so, and these are Christians who have been believers in Jesus for five or six years tops. Right? They haven't been lifelong Christians. <laughs> Many of them have a long history of sexual promiscuity. We said last week that it was commonplace for a Corinthian man to go outside of his marriage to search for sexual satisfaction, not from his wife, but from other women in his social circles. So you can imagine here, here we have two people, a man and a woman, and both have experienced the amazing miracle of regeneration. Wow. They've been born again to a living hope. They have trusted Christ. God rescued them out of a life of sin and death. They're born again. And Paul has already written to this church. He said in chapter 5 that he wrote to them in a previous letter, which we don't have. And in that letter, he said, I don't want you to even keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, most certainly the man in that Christian relationship, that new Christian relationship, and possibly that woman were once these people. So you have to imagine, it would have been a logical question, wouldn't it be, for this church, especially for this wife, perhaps, in this situation, to wonder that even though now they're born-again Christians, I wonder, Paul, is it the best thing for us if we are freed from the constraints of this marriage and maybe we should just go serve the Lord together if we're not supposed to keep company with sexually immoral people? 
been a logical question, wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be? Now, Paul is a pastor, though, who knows his flock. So for this newly Christian couple, he pulls out the big guns. All right? This is what he's doing in verse 10 and 11. He says, to the married, I give this charge. That's a command. I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Now, what's he doing here? Paul is appealing to Jesus' instructions that he gave about marriage some 25 years before Paul wrote this letter. Those words would later be written down in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. Those gospels had not been written at the timing of this letter, and they were, they were still being compiled. So Paul is drawing from inspiration that he got from the Holy Spirit from Jesus. And so to a culture that's radically opposed to the permanence of the marital union, Paul is saying, listen, don't listen to me first. You listen to Jesus first. And Paul and Jesus' instruction about marriage go all the way back to the beginning. Jesus appeals to Genesis 2.24 in Matthew 19. He says, the two shall become one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul follows suit and says, the wife and husband should not divorce. He then adds in verse 11a, you following me so far? Okay. In verse 11a, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, let me just pause here. Let me just take a deep breath. This is not all the Bible has to say about marriage in this section. I want you to know that. The Bible has much more to say about marriage and divorce. But since Paul is writing to people with long histories of marriage and divorce for convenience, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 times, Paul wants these men and women to hear God's heart. So as a good pastor, Paul is saying, look, you should not separate from one another. But if you do, and he knows sometimes separation may be necessary, Always be seeking reconciliation with the other. God wants this marriage to work. God created marriage, and he can make marriage work. And friends, if there was ever a more potent picture of the gospel in real life, it's when a, a Christian man and a Christian woman, both sinners lay down their rights, lay down their desires for the sake of the other, who will admit to the other spouse saying, listen, I am the problem in this marriage. I am the problem in this marriage. And if Jesus was willing to give up his life for the likes of someone like me, I am willing to do the same for you. You see, friends, even in these no-nuance practical commands, Paul is thinking about potential. Notice all the buts in this chapter. You see the buts in there? Verse 2, don't laugh. 7, 9, 11, verse 15. Each of these is an exception. Paul's saying, here's what you should do. This is a command, but I understand that you're weak. I understand that you're human. I understand that you're in need of grace. 
So in verse 11, he says, look, reconciliation is possible. God can heal those marriages that have been long damaged by hurtful words and actions. It won't be easy. You have a long road ahead. But since you are both in Christ together, there is abundant grace available for that road ahead. Now, friends, this is a word for all of us. This is a word if you are a Christian single getting ready for marriage. It's a word for you if you've been married for two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years. God's grace is the ordered input of energy necessary to keep a marriage together that has internal processes at work to break it down. But listen, those internal processes, strong as they are, and those might be fights, those might be poor communication, those might be on being on different wavelengths for extended seasons of time. By God's grace, each of those situations can be an actual means, an ingredient of a healthy marriage. Let me give you an example. The body that's never exposed to a virus or a bacteria may appear to be healthy, but it's not. We've heard stories about untouched people groups where outsiders come in and they bring with them their technology and their sickness and disease. And almost whole populations of untouched people are wiped out because of the virus that they brought in. You see, friends, viruses teach the body how to heal. Bacteria teaches the body how to heal. And sometimes it might take a virus in a marriage not to kill it, no, but to build up endurance, to even make it immune to stronger viruses that will come in the future. Friends, do you see a virus attacking your marriage today? Maybe that virus is in the person next to you. But maybe it's in you. It's in both of you. In my marriage, I'm pretty sure that I have been the sicker of the two. My sin nature has threatened harmony in my home more times than I care to admit. I am apologizing to Michelle far more than she is apologizing to me. That's a fact, honey. We'll deal with that later. But friends, when a sinful man and a sinful woman are thrust together in the same house forever, and you are faced with one another, and you take God's word seriously. These verses, you take these verses seriously. The virus that is in you can actually heal a marriage because just like the symptoms of sickness expose what's inside of us, our sinful words and actions expose our sin and they reveal our need for a savior. Friends, in Christian marriage, reconciliation is possible when we learn to look more intently at Christ's love and mercy for us than our spouse's sin. 
He has joined us with an unbreakable vow. And I'm talking about us to him. We can never be freed from Christ. Aaron pointed out this uh, commentator, Stephen Um, this quote he wrote on 1 Corinthians. Christ's marital vow to his bride are eternally unbreakable because they are sealed with his blood. In the church's marriage to Christ, it is not until death do us part. It is my death ensures that we will never be apart. That is the potential that Paul envisions. If you're a married couple with a virus, acknowledge we are sick. We need help. And then join hands and look at that perfect life lived for you and consider that precious blood shed for you and look each other in the eye and say, I'm sorry that I have allowed my sin to damage this marriage. God, God, help me. He can repair it. He can repair it. That self-giving love, that is God's grace at work to stop a breakdown. So that's the Christian marriage. The second couple Paul addresses is in verses 12 to 14, the mixed marriage, the mixed marriage. Look at verse 12 again. To the rest I say, not I, excuse me, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. All right, so Paul now here says, I, not the Lord. See, he reversed it from verse 10. What Paul is saying here is that I, I'm speaking to you new revelation. Jesus never spoke about this specific situation, and so God is completing his thoughts on marriage right here through me. Okay? Now, again, let's account for context. By the way, verse 11 is not permission to covenant in marriage with an unbeliever if you're a Christian. We'll talk about that later. So what's going on in Corinth? Again, the gospel has rescued this church out of a life of paganism, out of a life of idolatry. Just, just think about this. None of the people are, that Paul's writing to are raised in a Christian home. Not one of them was baptized back when they were 12 years old and stood before the church and said, I'm giving my life to Christ. Not a single one of them has a history with Jesus that lasts more than a half of a decade. This is the church that Paul is writing to. These are baby Christians. But not every church member lived in a home where everybody accepted Paul's message. Some of the members in this church were married to a person who did not go along with what Paul was preaching. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, but not everyone believes. And so evidently, some married men or women, women were here and they were radically saved and they came home and they told their spouse about it and their spouse thought it to be a bunch of nonsense, but... Okay, if that's what you want to do, fine, I'll go along with it. And so here's these, this Christian man or this Christian woman, and they're, they're concerned. And so they write to Paul, and they, they say, Paul, listen, my spouse is not a believer. They didn't accept the gospel when you were preaching it to us. I did. I believed. I've been changed. And so am I, am I hurting my spiritual life by remaining married to this person? Or maybe they even wondered, is my marriage illegitimate, Paul? 
Those are reasonable questions. Mixed marriages were discouraged among pagans and Jews alike even before these people became Christians. So Paul has to come in and give his Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom. He says, if any brother, that's a Christian, a brother or sister, has an unbelieving spouse that's at least willing to accept the fact that you're a Christian and they agree not to abandon the marriage, listen to me, you should stay together. You should stay married. But the reasoning that he gives for this in verse 14 is both unexpected, I think, and it's amazing, again, I think. He says, don't get a divorce because the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of the believing spouse. Otherwise, if they were defiled, as you say, then even your children would be unclean, but they are holy. Now, what in the world does that mean? I want to say here, obviously, Paul is not throwing his theology out the window when he writes. He wasn't up too late writing this section, and then he had to go back, but he didn't have a chance to edit it. He's not saying that unbelieving people automatically enter the kingdom of God because hubby or wifey is a Christian. Salvation is always and always will be by grace alone, through faith alone, through the merits and finished work of Christ alone. What Paul is doing, likely, is drawing on his Jewish roots here. Now, we in the West tend to think of this word holy with, as having one definition. Right? We tend to think of it as, you know, godly and without sin. But in Hebrew, it has multiple meanings. In Hebrew, it, it can mean set apart for a special purpose. It can mean consecrated. Uh, take, for example, in the temple back in Old Testament Judaism. In that temple, there were special utensils, bowls and, and plates and, and cups and forks and, and platters and all kinds of things like that. These items themselves were called holy, but they were not themselves changed internally simply by virtue of being in the temple, but they were consecrated by God to be used in ritualistic worship. They're in the temple, so they're set apart. That's what Paul's saying here about the unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving child. He's saying because they're in the same house as a blood-bought, spirit-filled follower of Jesus, they are given access to the grace of God that is not found in an unbelieving house. In other words, as John MacArthur says, one Christian in the home makes it a Christian home. The fundamental makeup of an unbelieving spouse or child, dear one, does not change simply by virtue of them living in your house. But they are set apart by God to see and hear the truth of the gospel and the life of the Spirit in ways that other households are not and other children are not. Listen, Paul's already told us if you're a Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And listen, if that's you and someone else in your house is not, your family is always on the doorstep of the temple. Constantly, day in, day out. Holiness is more powerful than impurity. 
And like Christ touched the unclean and made them clean, the believing spouse, in a sense, holifies their unbelieving spouse and their child. Now someone says, wow, that's nice. And I believe what you're saying. But I've been a Christian a long time. And I have not seen my spouse come to faith. And I have not seen my child come to faith. There may be people in this room who never saw your spouse come to faith and they left. And so you hear that and you're saying, what's going on? My friend, if that's you, remember, Paul is always thinking about potential. He has a high view of the grace of God, which is able at any moment to interrupt and transform spiritual decay. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's what he uses to conquer rebel power. It's what he uses to overcome the effect of sin in a person's life. And Paul says, if you find yourself in a difficult marriage, you have been given a unique call to model and to show and to speak this truth, even if the fruit doesn't manifest for many years and even if the fruit never manifests. Now listen, I am an example of this. I'm a third-generation Christian. Both sets of my grandparents were believers. I still have a grandmother who's alive. She's a believer. But my mom's parents were saved when they were in their 20s at the same time in this little community church in northwest New Jersey. I want to show you how it worked out in my life. Together they had six children. That's my grandparents had six children. Those are my aunts and uncles and my mom. Two boys and four girls. Now God saved all six, all six of my aunts and uncles and my mom in my grandparents' home. Those six children all married and had a combined total of 22 children. Those are the great-grandchildren, and I'm one of those. I and one of my, my two brothers are among that number. Those 22 grandchildren grew up and had a combined total of 50 great-grandchildren. And even the great-grands are having kids now, which makes me feel very old. I think there's like 10 great-great-grandchildren. Now, until my grandmother died, she died when she was well into her 90s. She was blind. She had a caretaker living at home with her. She hadn't laid eyes on her Bible for 10 years, but so much of it was here. And she would wake up every morning and she would pray for every one of her children, her grandchildren, and her great-grandchildren by name. And she would pray, God, would you please save every one of my children? Would you make my biological children my spiritual children? Would you transform their lives? Today, all six kids are serving Christ. Almost every one of the 22 grandchildren are serving Christ. The 50 is a different story, but we're praying for them. But I stand as a Christian here today because, and my wife is a Christian here today. My mom was the mouthpiece that led Michelle to saving faith. We're here because of the faith of my grandparents. Now, I share this to you with you not because this is a model of what happens in every single house. I share this with you because if you are a Christian in a mixed family, don't 
discount the power of God's grace in and through you. Don't belittle the power of God just because you see nothing happening. Your spouse, your child are beneficiaries of the very grace of God because they live in your house, maybe without even knowing it. Your children are being exposed. Your spouse is being exposed to the beauty and the love of Jesus through you. And only God knows the exact moment when the self-giving love of Christ will finally break open their stony heart and flood that heart with light and with life for the very first time. Friends, your loved ones are in close proximity to you for a reason. Commit by God's grace to this situation. Hard as it is, keep asking, keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking, and rest in knowing that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Just rest. This is the last point I'll make because I'm running out of time and because it's the last point. As a reminder to me to hurry up. Number three, the broken marriage. This is the one in which the unbelieving partner leaves the marriage. Verse 15 says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. This is a marriage in which, it's in Corinth, in the church there, the Believing spouse has not initiated separation. It's the unbelieving spouse, and this person leaves. This is a very real occurrence that happened in the church there. Some spouses could not stomach the fact that their wife, their husband, was actually believing this bunch of lies about this Jewish Messiah named Jesus and following him. They could not handle it. And so they took advantage of this easy, you know, separation by Divorce, or uh, divorce by separation. So you imagine the question that they come to Paul with. They say, Paul, you got to speak to this. What should I do? Should I keep on pursuing my unbelieving spouse? You say they're made holy because of me. Should I go after them? And I'm sure that there were even some who felt that their home was being divided because of their faith. And so it was up to them to, to fix this problem. That as much as was it was in them, they were to live at peace with everyone. And that meant they were to keep pursuing their spouse and keep going after them until they came home. And friends, especially the Jews, the former Jews among this congregation, they would have had reason to do this. The Old Testament story of Hosea and Gomer is a classic example of a husband pursuing a wife that's abandoned the marriage, which is what Israel did with the Lord, and the Lord kept chasing after her, and that's God's heart toward wayward people. But Paul seems to be speaking of the marriage that for all intents and purposes is finished. It's over. The voice of this verb separates in verse 15, pictures a spouse that's removed themselves from the marital covenant. They're not coming back. Maybe they've even been remarried. So Paul says to the spouse left behind, you're not enslaved. You are not bound. Why? Because God has called you to peace. In other words, don't, don't further exasperate 
a situation that's too far gone. Already the house is divided. Already the kids are affected. If after doing all you can to make it work and you see that it won't be, it won't work, be free. Be at peace. Let it go. Now, of course, that situation would be very difficult for anyone who's found themselves in it. And perhaps you are here and you have, you're, you're, in, you're in that situation or you have been in that situation and your life has been anything but peaceful, faithful though you are seeking to be to the Lord in this situation. I think Paul would say something that I think is wonderfully comforting. It might not sound that way at first, but wonderfully comforting in verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That word save has a wide range of meaning in the original. Paul, of course, does not mean that every human in themselves can go save someone with salvific power and change their hearts. That word save here has this idea of of winning over. Paul's saying, how do you know, saved one, loved one, whether your efforts to save the marriage will have the effect of winning your spouse over to Christ in the end? How do you know that? Now, is Paul contradicting what he said in verse 14, that your involvement in your spouse's life maybe only works for some couples but not others? No. Friends, the reality is there is no guarantee that even the most winsome person in this room will have the effect of being the impetus for saving grace in the unbelieving partner's life. But what Paul is saying is that real heart change in someone, in the person that we love, the kids that we love, the spouse that we love, is ultimately something that we have zero control over. And it may be in God's purposes that he makes salvation possible for our spouse through the separation of the marriage, through the relinquishment of our control by letting go. That's the hardest thing we'll ever have to do is let go to something that we would die to keep together. like a deep wound in our body. All we want to do is mess with it and try to care for it and try to cover it and try to put stuff on it and protect it. But the best thing we could do is get our hands off of it and stop touching it. Friends, what if in the hidden plans of God, way beyond our understanding, that the breakdown of a marriage is exactly what God intends to use to change Not only your spouse, but you. But you. In closing, I just want to speak to a a few friends here. I want to just take a moment to pastor us before we pray. I want to speak to those of us who have been divorced. Any sermon on marriage can be difficult, but Something like this would be especially difficult for you, and I commend you for being here, and I commend you for listening, and I commend you for submitting yourself to God's word. Dear ones, divorce is messy. And sometimes it's, it's hard to find 
clear-cut biblical instruction as to what we are to do. Maybe your spouse has walked out on you. Maybe it was adultery. Maybe there's a thousand other types of scenarios. Or maybe even you initiated the divorce. And you carry guilt around. I want to say something to you if that's you. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. I know it's so much a part of who you are that it's hard to believe that that's not true. But if you're a believer in Jesus today, there is no sin, there is no brokenness, there is no lostness that he is not reclaiming for himself that he is not redeeming for his glory. You might look at your past and you might say, I can't believe a word you are saying. But if you will trust Christ today, again, one more time, step back, breathe, rest, watch him, let him redeem, let him heal you, let him change your heart one more time. God knows how to sustain those who are broken and who are lost. Dear ones, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And if you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do and you don't know if you should be remarried or not, and I've, I've got such a sticky past, well, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about that. That's why you're here. Let's get together. There, there, are, there are godly couples in this church who can, help us, who can help you look at the whole counsel of God's word together and discern the ways that God has called you to peace. The second group I want to talk to is those who are contemplating divorce. Those who are contemplating divorce. Now, you've heard God's heart on the permanence of marriage in this passage. But maybe your marriage is just so damaged that you just can't see it as ever being repairable. Maybe one of you have, for all intents and purposes, abandoned the marriage. Not physically, they're still in the same house, but they've abandoned it emotionally. And you don't feel love for your spouse anymore. You're not in love anymore, and you want out. Friends, I want to say something to you, and I want to say it as tenderly and as pastorally as I can. Christian marriage is not first about love. It's about promise. It's about promise. Love comes and goes. Sometimes we are in love. Other times we cannot stand the other spouse. We can't stand to look at our spouse. We can't stand to be in the same room as our spouse. Sometimes we just coexist with our spouse. But friends, when love fades, that marriage never ceases to be a promise. That marriage never ceases to be a covenant, a promise to remain true to that spouse, even when you're no longer in love. Dear ones, rather than looking for a way out, God wants you to recommit today to that promise. Maybe you sit here and think, this guy has no idea how hard it has been for me to love that person. And guess what? That's true. I don't. But friends, didn't, didn't Jesus know how hard you were to love, and yet he still did at the cost of his own life, that he laid down his life for you so that you would know eternal love, so that you would know the unbreakable promises of God. 
Friends, the gospel enables us to see sin and our spouses and then cover it over because that's what Jesus did for us. And on the basis of that commitment, it's a promise that he'll never let us go, and we can do the same too. His promise is the basis of our promise to one another. So very practically, resolve in your heart to take that promise seriously. Invest energy into the repair of your house. Get help. You're not meant to walk through this alone. Walk through it with your brothers and sisters in this church. Stop hiding behind the fear of what others may think when they look into your life. The cross exposes every one of us. It says we're all broken. Don't be afraid to share how broken you really are. Finally, to the newly married or those who are contemplating marriage. You may be listening to this sermon and you may be saying, man, we, we ain't never going to be like that. We, we love each other so much and, and I have just, I know we're committed to each other till the day we die. Amen. May it be so. But friends, Paul wrote this letter and he wrote this section because every marriage hits rocky patches. Every marriage hits rough spots. And I think one application you could take from this passage is that the best and hardest lessons that God wants to teach us come from our closest relationships, and marriage is one of the most refining Gold cannot be refined apart from fire. Fire must be introduced if you want gold. And if you want it to be lasting for a long time, more fire is going to come. More viruses are going to creep in. But guess what? They're not meant to kill you. It's not meant to destroy you. God put them there so that you would be healthy. So if you're newly married or you're thinking about marriage, this is to singles too. This is to my children. Open up your lives to others and invite their scrutiny. Open up your marriage to others and allow trusted brothers and sisters to speak into your marriage. Invite their wisdom. So many marriages fail because they fight behind closed doors and hold hands and smile in public. Don't let that be you. I trust that the Spirit is able to take and apply these truths to whatever situation that you're in because, listen, God is still completing the work of redemption that he began and every one of us, no matter your life situation. Let's pray. Lord, I need to take a deep breath myself. Lord, I ask that you just do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I pray that you would heal what is wounded I pray that you would breathe life into what feels like death. I pray that the broken marriage would find redemption. Not in a happy home, in a loving smile, but in their Savior. And then the smile will come. Do what we cannot do. Be that interruptive force to stop the decay, oh Lord. And I pray for peace. 
I pray for the peace that passes understanding for my brother or sister that cannot be reconciled. May they live in the freedom that Christ has set them free. May they find Jesus as a better husband, a better savior. And may the watching world see him in that sister or that brother. Lord, do this for your glory in the church and forever and ever.